Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today comes from Luke, uh, verse, excuse me, Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. In your pew Bible, It's on page 850, if you would like to follow along. Your word, O God of grace, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Open us now to receive that word in heart, soul, mind, and body, that it may be transformed for greater faithfulness and service to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near and listening to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Then she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from the Old Testament, from the prophet Jeremiah, the fourth chapter, where Jeremiah is prophesying of what God is saying to the people of Jerusalem, and he, the prophet, is also reacting to it. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind comes from me out of the bare heights in the desert toward my poor people, not to winnow or cleanse, a wind too strong for that. Now it is I who speak in judgment against them. Look, he comes up like clouds, like chariots, like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart clean of wickedness, so that you may be saved. How long shall your evil schemes lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims disaster from Mount Ephraim. Tell the nations, here they are. Proclaim against Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. They have closed in around her like watchers of a field, because she has rebelled against me, says the Lord. Your ways and your doings have brought this upon you. This is your doom. 
how bitter it is. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster overtakes disaster. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are destroyed, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They do not know me. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil, but do not know how to do good. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void. And I looked to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Because of this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above grow black. For I have spoken, I have purposed. I have not relented, nor will I turn back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jack and Tara were all about Huga. Sitting across from me before we began planning their wedding, they reviewed their five years together, but they also wanted to set a scene for what they wanted their future life to look like. Fresh off obtaining their first mortgage, these two millennials buzzed with excitement about the feeling they wanted in their home, a feeling they called Huga. But more than a feeling, Jack and Tara wanted this to be their way of life, Huga, an idea that had come to them from the Danes, famously the happiest people in the world. There is nothing Scandinavian about Jack and Tara, but a chance upon podcast introduced them to this foreign culture, and Jack and Tara now wanted to create this in their lives, spelled H-Y-G-G-A. Huga is about an atmosphere and an experience, a feeling of home, a feeling that we're safe, shielded from the world where we can let our guard down. Huga is present where there is candlelight, a crackling fire and an aroma of fresh baked bread. It comes in the flavors of warm mulled wine, tasty stew or homemade applesauce. It's felt in scarves, comfy PJs, your toes tucked inside of soft socks. It's family being gathered and actually attentive to one another. Winnie the Pooh said, you don't spell love, you feel it. And he might have said the same thing about Huga. Rather than knowing how to spell it, feel the coziness that defines Huga. Tara and Jack aren't interested in the latest iPhone or space heater or microwavable lean cuisine. Instead, they are actively engaged in creating a feeling and a way of being. More than crafting a great party, they are being intentional about creating a way of life for all who enter their home. Huga is what they're creating. 
cultivate is our fall theme here at First Pres. And one way that we cultivate richer lives in Christ is by understanding that we are now and always creating. While few of us are as intentional about creating a way of life as Jack and Tara, still sometimes we forget how much creating we daily do. You are always creating something. You are making something of this life God has for you, nurturing and nourishing something or someone into being in our ever-changing world. You cultivate a richer life when you create. Perhaps your children, each unique and facing distinct challenges, for you will always shape and guide them through your connection to them. Vocationally, you shape a great deal with your vast experience or relevant questions. You create a new marriage or cultivate comfort in the safekeeping of an old one. Some of you are cultivating grandchildren in that delicious stage of life where you mold and manage them for a few hours, then hand them back. <laughs> Some here are trying not to badly botch a batch of home brew. Some knit shawls, build canoes, watercolor landscapes, write limericks, decorate cookies, or sew unique Halloween costumes, the things you like to make. We even cultivate our pets. Many, like mine, need more training, more cultivating. So are you creating something? Yes, but what? Last week, I sat in a circle with 20 people at a conference for people who love writing. On a remote island in Alaska, we marveled at massive whale spouts and eagles overhead, with the wind whipping outside our windows overlooking Uyak Bay in between Kodiak, Harvester, and Bear Islands. With laptops open and decent coffee nearby, our leader gave us an assignment. Free write for five minutes with no stopping or editing on the word bones. We looked at one another with trepidation. It was only Monday. We had, we had just met 24 hours before. Among us, a woman from Calgary whose best friend had just died, two middle-aged ministers serving small churches, a researcher from D.C. writing an epistolary novel, a Christian science practitioner, two medical doctors from Singapore, and me. Recovering from the last year of challenge here, recuperating from leaving my kid at college, and caring for a family member with chronic illness. But the Spirit of God brought us faithful lover of words together, and we knew we'd been given a gift. Over seven days, we tried to cultivate our calling to create, to finish a book by a certain deadline, to write poetry in a beautiful place, or pen a memoir, and then to edit it. When cultivating language in a writer's group, you critique one another's creation to make it better, revise, write some more, cut, and leave passages on the floor. William Faulkner famously called this process killing our darlings. Some editors trim with a thin blade. Others bring more of a hatchet. These were our words, our sentences, our stories. But to create is also to rework, to revise, to cut, to start again. God spoke creation into being, and surely God must revisit and revise it often. We are in God's image, the one who creates, then alters, then revises and reshapes his beloved creation. We humans do the same. I have reworked my approach to family gatherings over time as people have married into our family with different needs and expectations. Jack and Tara's hygge will look different in future years. 
so too will our ministries here at church, for church is no exception. You sat in meetings this last year listening and sharing, examining and, and revising our practices to create vitality here and to create and cultivate health is to love First Pres. We want it to be better. Yet it's also true that when we are creating, shaping, or building something, there can come a point where we decide to throw it away and start over. Vladimir Nabokov was on the way to the incinerator with a draft of Lolita, scared of what the public might think of his strange masterpiece when his wife Vera snatched it from his grasp. Georgia O'Keeffe and Claude Monet were among frustrated artists who destroyed their works. Michelangelo partially defaced a marble pieta, hammering into Christ's leg and arm, destroying them before walking away with the work unfinished. We create and recreate, we revise and we destroy. We come by that naturally, following a God who creates and judges, redeems and saves. It is that judging God that is revealed in today's prophecy. A harsh editor, disapproving, angry, frustrated with his ineffective revisions, God, Yahweh, is ready to rip out the page called us, crumple us, and toss us to the side. But something stopped him. In Jeremiah's time, Jerusalem was collapsing. Yahweh was done assisting. Reforming King Josiah had died, leaving two sons, pathetic excuses for kings. Leadership failures aside, the people they cannot rule aren't much better, called stupid, wise, and evil doing, with no understanding of anything. God is wearing his heart on his sleeve here. He is mad, heartbroken and menacing and threatening, offering only this. The spirit of God that hovered over creation in Genesis will be back, and it will show up as a hot wind to scorch the earth. God's indictment will blow over and blow away all that was once called good. This is no ordinary hot Middle Eastern breeze. The holy whirlwind will not winnow wheat from chaff, nor wash or cleanse. It is bent on destruction. God is devoted to doom, to taking them back to a time before the chaos of creation, to reversing the clock thousands of years, forcing them to see the heavens covered in black, the sky devoid of light, the disappearance of birds, a human-free shell of creation. Alphanetta Wines comments that Israel's troubles are about to go to a whole new level. Jeremiah is clear about why. The health of the world, the status of the cosmos, the very life of nature, it all hinges on what they were doing, what God's creatures were doing. Their words and deeds, their love of sin, their embrace of evil, that changes nature as they knew it. That changes their very existence. For more emphasis, Jeremiah, like a seasoned rapper, adds a beat, a fourfold litany, a haunting rhythm, battering it to them, compelling them to look, 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 and look. Creation was in peril, and they had brought it on themselves. Transport these words to our days on this overheating planet. We can't help but feel a little lump in our throat, a fear in our gut, a break in our heart. For this is a prophecy that painfully punctures any denials and all indifference. This church is bleak stuff, a somber reality before us. 
For those who see, it is not a question. Look at ice melt, ocean rise, terrifying coastal flooding. Look at hurricanes and tornadoes and fires. Look at population dispersion and human agony and deep despair. Look and look at the destruction, the toll. Disaster is too common a word in our lexicon, and we know why. Our behavior. In part, it is because creation's creatures remain in a love affair with fossil fuels, a toxic relationship that continues at our peril, and we can't imagine anything different. Some argue that we've made a deal with the devil that prevents consensus and commitment to change. Some say our partisan pettiness has only elevated the estrangement between the climate change deniers, the sky is falling scientists, and everyone in between. An image from Annie Dillard's 1974 Pulitzer Prize winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, has long haunted me. It is hard to hear, I must warn you. She tells of the time long ago in the frozen tundra when Eskimos, desperate to feed themselves, would kill wolves in a horrific way. They would take knives, slather them in whale blubber, and bury the hilt in snow and ice. The hungry animals smelling the blubber would find the knives and with their frozen, numbed tongues would lick them compulsively, slicing their tongues to ribbons when they would slowly bleed to death. Friends, we are addicted to a way of life that cannot be sustained, drawn to what decreates creation, seemingly numb to the ultimate cost. It is just as bleak now as it was then. And yet, Walter Brueggemann writes that this passage is not a blueprint for the future, neither it is a prediction nor a prophecy to scare us into repentance. It is a wake-up call to a sleeping, numbed, procrastinating people. Hope lives by God's reversal. A sentence in the text I imagine is God's six-word story. I will not make a full end. When you put that with the history, we can know hope. We know all was not lost. That same sliver of hope that Israel held on to is ours too. A hope that, like in their time, arises out of the relationship between creator and creation. God didn't give up on creation, but offered a new way to be at peace with it. In the creation of Jesus, the Savior, the source and solution of right relationship between us. Hope. God makes it possible by only saying this, I won't do the revising, you must. I won't recover you, you will. I've done the saving. Now it's your turn. Repent, turn towards me and change. It's bleak, it feels dark, but in the light of Christ, you can see, look, and see a God who changed his mind, revised the plan, created a relationship with the people built on love, made not from judgment, not from disappointment. Look at how our creator crafted Jesus into the world to preach parables, to tell us again and again. Look at how if you follow him, what once was lost will be found. None will be lost. Not you or me or anything else in all creation. Jesus has come to seek out and save the lost, and made in his image, so have we. I will not make a full end. God's question to us is, can you say the same thing?
Life is about what we make, what we create, and how we revise it. We are the keepers of creation that God made. So we look and we see and we seek. But then what? Other than the individual steps we must take to make choices more healthy for the environment than our own lifestyles. Like God's Jeremiah, we also have to feel. We have to feel a kind of anger like God felt. And if we can point an angry, frustrated love at ourselves, if we can be mad at ourselves for lack of action and ignorance for this long, if we can hold that anger at what those who follow us will face because we did nothing, out of that emerges a sliver of hope and a patch of light and a pathway to change. Anger and imagination and love, not helplessness and denial. That will kindle us to seek out and save creation. What good is being heartsick about it and then going back to bed? With an uprising of love and an outpouring of sacrifice, there can be an end to the estrangement between science and skepticism created by grief and cultivated by our need for comfort. Barbara Kingsolver wrote in Small Wonder that we are alive in a fearsome time and we have been given new things to fear. We've been delivered huge blows, but also huge opportunities to reinforce or reinvent our will to name our enemies. She says, a careless way of sauntering across the earth and breaking open its treasures, a terrible dependency on sucking out the world's best juices for ourselves. These may be our enemies. The changes we dread most may contain our salvation. To cultivate our lives in Christ means to know ourselves as creatures who create, made in God's image, but also in God's image, to be creatures who seek. Like Jesus, we must be willing to seek and save the lost, even when that is us. Creation needs more than cultivating. It needs saving. And in partnership with the divine who saves us, we can save too. If you change what you believe and how you behave, you will change what you can become. Wasn't that our summer theme? And now we cultivate change. We must start somewhere. So as we go about saving our planet, we can practice by saving something, looking for what we most need to see and seek out and change. Beyond this creation so sublime and imperiled, what of your creations needs tending and revising and seeking out and ultimately saving? What right now is heavy on your shoulders? What are you most heartsick about? What is lost that needs to be found? Cultivate what you can. At every level of your life, edit for reconciliation and wholeness and health. Creating is a joy, and words are as full of wonders as the gorgeous world God has given us. I left Alaska with my heart lightened and my faith ferrying me across the waters back to First Pres. Those people gave me courage, lightness of being, and laughter, all needed in a world that can feel so bleak. They also left me, a pastor and a therapist, with a joke. How many therapists does it, change, does it take to change a light bulb? One. But the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> we children of God, our creator, we have to want to change and grow. We want our holy editor to be at work on us. But before we can change, we have to be willing to see.
and I have a light bulb waiting for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Holy One, receive these offerings as you receive our lives. Gather all our false starts and uncertain efforts, our generosity and our reluctance. Enliven us with your breath and make your purposes known that our lives might show forth your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. continue this morning in prayer. Spirit of life, you are beyond our imagining, beyond our control, beyond our comfort. In the beginning, you hovered over the deep and created life and life. Still, you preside and brood over the world. You give life and breath to all and in all you live. We blossom and flourish by your nurturing, nurturing hand, but do not let us wait too long to awaken when you call, to arise at the sound of our name. Teach us who are foolish what it means to live good and holy lives. And we are foolish. We are lost and forsaken, rich and haughty. We maintain appearances and maneuver for advantage with our neighbors even as we make idols from our fears and insecurities. But your ways, O oh God, are not our ways. You are not a God of tidy homes or weekly appointments. Your love is too deep, your claim too pervasive. You are there when tempers fray and anger erupts. You are there when anxiety overwhelms and when we withdraw. You are here in this place in every bruised heart, every aching body, every tangled dream. Move among us now. Receive our broken spirits as part of the offerings we bring this day. Breathe deeply into this room your reconciling love, your holy expectation, and your unending grace. Allow us now to see the faces of those we have harmed, those we have kept at a distance, those whose heartbreak may be old news, but those whose loss is relentless. Pray for those whose lives have been blown apart by Hurricane Dorian and other natural disasters, especially those in the Bahamas. For the people of Yemen, Syria, and the Central African Republic. For migrants and refugees the world over. We pray for all who cannot rest in safety, who must remain alert to signs of danger because their countries are sundered by war because their homes are tainted by violence and abuse, because they have no shelter but the street. Help us move with compassion and haste toward all who are in need. God of holy love, we thank you for each sign of your stirring, for the songs of children, 
for gardens cultivated from empty lots, for breathless laughter and hot, flowing tears, for the cultivation of Hugo, for quiet acts of generosity, for resilient spirits and safe spaces, for simple words of encouragement. You are present in each reminder of life's beauty and grace. Author of life, give us the courage to name ourselves as those whose responsibility is great. Teach us to tend and cultivate the world you love, to sow more than we reap, to heal more than we wound, to let your grace and mercy overflow from our lives that we might honor your name in the world. We pray all this with hearts both eager and reluctant, trusting that you will meet us and call us exactly where we are. In the name of Jesus Christ, who teaches us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.